to come in the future. John Wesley, who's one of my heroes of the faith, as you know, he's the founder of the Methodist Church, and he was asked by a woman, if you only had 24 hours to live, what would you do with your time? And here is what he said, quote, Why, madame, just as I intend to spend it now, I would preach this evening at Gloucester and again at 5 tomorrow morning. After that, I would ride to Tewksbury, preach in the afternoon, <clears throat> and meet the societies in the evening. I would then go to Ma Martin's house, talk and pray with the family as usual, retire myself to my room at 10 o'clock, commend myself to my heavenly Father, lie down to rest, and wake up in glory." End quote. What John Wesley was saying basically is if I only had 24 hours to live, I would spend that time period doing the will of God. You know, the Bible says as a believer, our number one desire should be to do the will of God. We should be living for the will of God. In fact, Peter says that in chapter 4. He's writing to persecuted, beleaguered Christians who are suffering for their faith, and here's what he says to them. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. The Greek is arm yourselves with the same mindset. In other words, Christ preached the truth. He suffered for it. Don't be surprised if we suffer. Have the same mindset because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. In other words, the reason you're suffering is because you're not living for sin anymore. What are you living for? Well, he says in verse 2, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. There it is. That's what God does in our heart. When we become Christians and we begin to grow in our walk with God, our number one desire is to live for the will of God. Jesus becomes the center and circumference of our life. We present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. But here's the problem. Not all Christians today are living for the will of God. They don't make Jesus the number one priority in their life. And that was the problem of the people to whom James was writing to. So if you would turn to James chapter 4... James chapter 4, as we continue in our verse-by-verse -verse study through James, we are looking this morning at <clears throat> verses 13 through 17, and the title of this message is Living for the Will of God. Now remember, James is writing to a Jewish community, and in chapter 4, as he ends chapter 4 and he goes into chapter 5, James is going to be dealing with two categories of people. In chapter 4, he's going to be dealing with wealthy merchants. These are entrepreneurs. These are business people that are basically there to make a profit. And then in chapter 5, he's going to deal with wealthy landowners. Now, James is very strong against the rich, not because they're rich, but because they were not living for the will of God. They were living for their wealth, <clears throat> and they were also abusing the poor in chapter 5. And so James is going to address those two categories of believers, wealthy merchants and also wealthy landowners. In our section here, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he's dealing with the wealthy merchants. And what they were doing is they wanted to draw a profit. Notice, if you will, verse 13, he addresses them and he says this, "'Come now, you who say,' this would be the wealthy merchants, "'today or tomorrow we will travel,' to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. So he's addressing these wealthy entrepreneurs that want to go to a city 
They want to make a profit and obviously benefit. Now, James is not condemning the fact that they're making plans for the future. There's nothing wrong with that. James is not basically condemning them because they want to travel to this city or that city. What James is condemning these wealthy merchants over is the fact that they were making plans independent of God. They were practical atheists. They thought that they were the captain of their own ship, the master of their own fate, and as a result, they left God out of their plans. And so James has to confront this issue. They didn't have an attitude of dependency upon God. It's not that every decision that they made, they were to subject to the will of God, but the whole tenor of their life was not living for the will of God. And you know what? Christians today can fall into this. You can become a Christian. You could be born again. You could know Jesus Christ. But you don't really live for the will of God. In fact, there is a pastor that used to pastor in Chicago. He says this, Kent Hughes, quote, So pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many or most Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. Most Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocations, family direction, or entertainments that actually seek God's will, end quote. He's right. This is probably predominant in the church today. People are saved, but they're not seeking the will of God. They're living their life independent of God. Now, this is not saying that every single decision that we make, we need to subject to the will of God in the sense that we have to seek God's will. I guarantee you this morning when you woke up and went into your closet to pick out your outfit, you didn't pray about it. The biblical principle is don't dress scantily clad. But beyond that, God gives you freedom to pick different outfits. If you're going to go out to eat after church, you're probably not going to pray, should I go to Wendy's, should I go to Taco Bell, should I go to this place, that place? You want to know why? You don't need to pray about that necessarily. Why? Because God's made you in His image. He's given you a modicum of freedom, and He gives you the ability to choose. He doesn't want us to be slaves. He wants us to walk in freedom. But even though you may make those decisions on your own, there's a sense in which you have this attitude of dependency upon God. And of course, the major decisions in life, we should subject to the will of God. We should pray. And that was the problem with these wealthy merchants is that they were making plans, which are fine, but they were arrogantly talking about how they're going to be entrepreneurs, they're going to make a profit, they're going to do this, they're going to do that. They were bragging, they were boasting, and they weren't concerned about God's will at all. And so James has to confront this. Now, chapter 5, he's going to confront the wealthy landowners because they were using the poor Christians in order to mow their fields, and they weren't paying their wages, and he he pronounces a strong diatribe against them. We'll get into that in the weeks to come. But in this section, James is going to give us five reasons why you and I need to live for the will of God, or we need to avoid making plans independent of God. Let's look at them this morning. The first reason why we're to live for the will of God or not make plans independent of God is we don't know the future. Notice what he says here, in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says to these wealthy uh, entrepreneurs, 
You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. You don't know the future, he says. So this arrogant boasting about how you're going to go to this city and that city, he says, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't have a crystal ball, as it were. It says in Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Again, it's not condemning the fact that you and I are not to make plans for the future. There's nothing wrong with planning. The Bible says a man plans his ways, but notice the other verse, the Lord directs his steps. We plan, but we live our lives in subjection to the will of God. Why? Because we know that God can alter our plans because God is the one who knows the future. Read the book of Isaiah. God challenges all the false idols. And one of the things that God uses is the fact that he can tell the future where his idols cannot. False gods cannot. And I know there are people today that think they can tell the future. Years ago, Laura and I did a trip out west. It was one of our favorite trips. We flew to Salt Lake City, rented a car, and then we drove to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Did a tour of Yellowstone. It was great. And I remember when we were in Jackson Hole, we were walking around the different shops, and I noticed this one shop that basically said it could tell your future, read your palm, and do all that stuff. And so there was a guy standing out the store. And I said to Laura, I said, "Hun, go into another store. Let me talk to this guy. And so I approached him, and I asked him questions. I said, you know, what do you guys do in there? He said, oh, we tell people's future and all this stuff. And so I shared the gospel with him. And he said, well, I'm a Christian. And I said, well, sir, do you realize it says in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 that it's an abomination to engage in that kind of stuff, palm reading, crystal ball, tea leaves, soothsaying, contacting mediums, whatever it is. Deuteronomy 18, God categorically condemns that. He didn't realize that. See, there are people that claim to know the future, and to some degree, demons know certain things that can happen, and they can somewhat bring fulfilled prophecy in your life by their demonic influence, but ultimately, it's God who knows the future. And listen, you and I don't know the future. That's why we are dependent upon God. Yes, we make plans, but we also realize that our plans can be subject to change. Why? Because God knows the future. I guarantee you everyone in this room could say that there are things that have happened in your life that were not a part of the plan. Things that maybe a curveball was thrown at you. Years ago, during the season of COVID, there was a guy attending Calvary Chapel, him and his wife. He was in his early 50s, and he had come to Christ, and he was growing in his walk with God. He would often share with me what he was learning, apologetics, and he was all excited. They were both military. They were both in, uh, I think it was uh, Fort Bragg or whatever that is in South Carolina. They both were stationed there. They would come to our church. And so one particular Saturday, he took a shower, walked out of the bathroom, and immediately he said he couldn't breathe. And so he told his wife. His wife sent him to Lexington Medical Center in South Carolina there, and uh, they basically intubated him. And they gave him remdesivir. You ever heard of that drug before? And he was in a coma in that state for about a week to two weeks. It destroyed his lungs. And I was there at his bedside when he took his last breath. I was with his wife and his father when he took his last breath. 
and he died. He went to the presence of the Lord. Listen, far better to be with Christ. But he died at a young age. You know what? That wasn't part of the plan, his wife told me. She didn't see that coming. He was pretty much healthy. And then I talked to her recently, and she was telling me, well, now that I'm single and my kids are getting older, here's what I'm going to do. You know what? When she got married, that wasn't in the purview of the plan, and her plan shifted. Why? God knows the future. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows things are going to change. And so that's why we make plans, but we also say, Lord, you know the future. That's why we live for the will of God, because listen, my plans and God's plans sometimes collide, and ultimately, we have to adjust our plans to God's plan, and that's why we don't know the future, so we have to humbly say, Lord, I'm making plans, but you ultimately know the future, and we have to trust God, because sometimes we don't like what happens in our life. It throws a curveball at us. And so James says to these wealthy merchants, listen, It's all right to make plans. It's all right to make a profit. It's all right to go to this city and that city. But make sure you realize that God knows the future. That's why you and I need to live for the will of God because he knows the future. There's a second reason why we need to live for the will of God and not make plans independent of God, and that is this. We, our earthly life is short. Our earthly life is short. Notice, if you will, verse 14 He says, for you are like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. He says to these wealthy merchants, he says, you're like smoke. It emerges and then it disappears. He says, your life is ephemeral. It's very short. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And again, that's the point. We need to live our lives for the will of God. Why? Because life is short. All of us know that when you hit 40 and you start moving forward, everything begins to accelerate. It seems like once you hit 40, everything goes very, very quickly. I look back and I go, man, my kids are grown. I have grandkids. I think back to high school. I look at pictures, and you look totally different from high school. And then you go, where did the time go? It accelerates very, very fast. And see, we forget that This is not a dress rehearsal. We have one life to live, and we need to live it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Job said this in chapter 14, verse 1, mortals born of women are few days and full of trouble. In fact, I was at the Columbus Zoo, and there was a billboard. Here is what it says, but the time is short. We must follow the right path. And they're right. Obviously, they didn't mean that to be a biblical statement, but it is a biblical statement. Our time is short, and listen, what we do for Jesus Christ now has eternal impact, and that's why we need to make the most of every opportunity that we have because we're only given a modicum of time, and we need to maximize that time. We're not to just be living for the here and now. We're to be living for the then and there. So that's why we're to live for the will of God is because our life on this earth is short. I had to leave this past Thursday to go do a funeral in New Jersey. I flew to Philadelphia. I was there till Friday night and came back. I had to do a funeral for a friend of mine who was 38 years old. He was in Wildwood, New Jersey with his fiance. He attended my Bible studies at the diner. He was in Wildwood, New Jersey, and he was walking up a stairwell. It was 11.30 at night. He had a pizza in his hand. Somehow his shoe got stuck And he stumbled, not wanting to have the pizza fall down. He braced the guardrail, partly, and the guardrail gave, and he fell two stories on his head. And he died, 38 years old. 
His mom was distraught, rightfully so. She asked me to do the funeral, and you know what? The funeral was packed. Large amount of Catholics there. They were in the aisles standing. Of course, I made sure I gave the gospel, and I said, thankfully, Josh is in heaven as I gave the truth. You know what? Josh woke up that morning. He did not know that that would be his last day on earth. And that's why we have to live for the will of God and not make plans independent of God because life is short. It's ephemeral. We're here today, gone tomorrow. How many like whipped cream? I know we all like whipped cream here. Now, you notice that bottle up on the screen there or that uh, canister. How many of you ever opened the refrigerator, taken it? All right, you're guilty as charged. And especially if you're on a diet, you do that because it's a low-calorie snack that you can have. Well, I like to do it. And one of the things I like to do is I like to put that whipped cream in coffee. And so when I get the coffee, I squirt it in there. And as soon as I squirt it in there, you know what happens? Smoke comes up. Immediately it comes up and then it disappears. And that's what James says our life is like. He says it's like a vapor. It's like smoke. Just coming off your coffee, it's here today and gone tomorrow. And that's why we have to maximize the time that God has given us. One person said this, I love this quote, we have one life to live and it soon will pass. Only what we do for Christ will last, end quote. Very, very important. There's a third reason why you and I are not to make plans independent of God or to live for the will of God, and that is to avoid proud, evil boasting. To avoid proud, evil boasting. Notice what he says in verse 16 to these wealthy merchants. He says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. He says, listen, when you brag about what you're going to do and the plans that you make, it's not that making plans is necessarily a proud act or it's necessarily evil, but when you say, here is what I'm going to do apart from God, it is a form of arrogance. It is a form of pride. And we see this in our culture all the time. People brag about what they're going to do. You know, I debate atheists online all the time, and one of the things I struggle with is their arrogance. They will often mock me. They will mock Christianity. And, you know, I'll often say to them in a gentle way, I'll say, you know, you can mock all you want, but listen, when you are on your deathbed, if you have that opportunity, it's funny how arrogance and pride evaporates. People aren't as arrogant when they're sick and when they're dying. In fact, there's the World Economic Forum. It's headed up by a man by the name of Klaus Schwab. Bill Gates is a part of this. It's a team of people. And basically, they're boasting in their arrogance about what they want to do with the globe. And what they want is one world economy. In fact, the slogan on their website is, you will, by 2030, they said, you will own nothing and you will be happy. And listen, they don't realize that they're fulfilling prophecy. They don't realize that this is part of the Bible, that the Bible says in Revelation 13, Revelation 17, that there is coming a one-world economy, no doubt about it. It may look like things are falling apart in our society, but they're really falling in place. It's kind of a tension. It's falling apart, but it's falling in place because God's the one who's doing it. But listen, they boast in their arrogance, not realizing that God is using them to accomplish their purpose or accomplish his purpose. And by the way, you say, well, how's this going to happen? Well, my view is this. It's going to happen. This is a side note. I believe it's going to happen either through a financial meltdown or a pandemic or both. God's going to use that to create the great reset. 
Now, I don't know that for sure. God didn't tell me that, but that seems where we're headed. I don't know when that's going to happen. But you know what? There are men and women in our culture that do not know God. They boast in their arrogance. This is what we're going to do. And you know what? God sometimes laughs at their plans, but other times God says, you're right. I'm going to fulfill my plan through your evil deeds. And James says, listen, for the Christian, when you live your life independent of God, you're not interested in seeking the will of God. You're not subjecting major decisions before God. You don't have an attitude of dependency upon God. And you say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to retire at this age, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to accomplish this. You know what? That's evil, proud boasting because God is not a part of your plans. See, pride runs much deeper than just basically bragging about yourself. It's when we live independent of God that we are arrogant and proud, and we got to avoid that. In fact, John Lennon of the Beatles said this in his arrogant boasting, Christianity will end. He says it will disappear. I do not have to argue with that. I am certain Jesus was okay, but his subjects were too simple. Today we are more famous than him, end quote. He was talking about the Beatles. Obviously, we know what happened to John Lennon. You see, this is the boasting and arrogance of the non-believer. Or Gloria, who is the editor of Miss Magazine. She says, by the 21st century, we will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential, not God. End quote. Arrogant boasting. We expect that from the non-believer. We don't expect it from the believer. Why? Because the believer lives his life in a humble dependence upon God. Again, are we robots? Does this mean that God doesn't give us freedom to make decisions? Absolutely not. God has created us in his image, which means we have the ability to think, feel, make decisions. And so God gives us a lot of freedoms to choose. He doesn't want us to be a slave, but as we make our decisions, as we make plans, as we live, we need to make sure that we're living for the will of God, that he is the center and circumference of our life that we are presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God. That's far different than people that just come to church on Sunday. They want to hear a good sermon. They want to praise the Lord, put money in the offering plate, and then they live their lives independent of God. That's not biblical Christianity. That's arrogance and that's pride. Because what we're saying is, God, I don't need you when we really need him. And so James is saying here to these wealthy merchants, he's like, listen, you're bragging and you're boasting about going to this city and that city. He says is arrogant because you're leaving God out. It stems from an arrogant, proud heart. And listen, I have a friend who is a part of my Bible study group in South Carolina. He's in a wheelchair. And he told the men one day, he said, you know what? I don't like the wheelchair. He says, but I'm thankful for the wheelchair. He says, because if it wasn't for the car accident that I got in that disabled me, he said, I wouldn't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He said, I was arrogant. I was proud. I wasn't living for the will of God. He says, now I'm living for the will of God because God had to get my attention. Now, God doesn't do that to everybody, obviously. James gives a fourth reason why we need to live for the will of God or not make plans independent of God, and that is this. It demonstrates our dependency upon God. It demonstrates our dependency upon God. Notice verse 15, if you will. He says this, instead, he says to these wealthy merchants, instead of bragging and boasting about your plans and how you're going to be an entrepreneur and how you're going to draw a profit, he says, instead, while you make your plans, you should say, if the Lord wills, 
we will live and do this or that. He's saying that's what you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Notice he's not condemning the plans, but he's saying you need to subject your plans to the will of God. Why? Because it reflects our dependency upon God. Now, does this mean every time that we do something or we say something, we need to qualify it with, well, if the Lord wills? Hey, hon, you want to go see the grandkids tonight? If the Lord wills. Hey, where are you going to eat after church? I think I'm going to Wendy's. If the Lord wills. Now, if you heard a Christian every time they said something and they followed it with, if the Lord wills, you'd go, they're nuts. You'd go, no, James didn't intend that phrase to be a slavish phrase that we use after everything we say. If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. No, it's an attitude. That's the point. It's an attitude of dependency. Now, there are times where I say, Lord willing, you've used that term before. If I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter, um, I think it's chapter 12 here or chapter 16. Here is what the Apostle Paul did, going back to my notes here. Chapter 16, verse 7, here is what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. He's telling the Corinthians, I don't want to just see you now and make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you. What does he say? If the Lord what? permits. See, Paul realized that he had plans, but his plans were subject to the will of God. And so you and I need to make our plans, but they need to be subject to the will of God. Why? Because it shows our dependency upon God. You know, if you study American history, it's interesting that the word providence and luck have been used throughout American history. In the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, People would use the word providence because they acknowledged that all of life was ruled by God. So even if you weren't a Christian, you will hear in a lot of movies, you will read in a lot of books where people will say, providence allowed this or providence caused this. That was a recognition that God was in control and that ultimately His will ruled. But you know what's happened in the last couple of uh, hundred of years? is we've thrown out the word what? Providence, and we use now the word luck. And you know what that shows us? It shows us the secularization of society. We have become secular. We have removed God out of the public sphere, and so we don't use the word providence anymore because we don't live our lives in light of the will of God, if the Lord wills. You see, they understood God was in charge, providence. Now we say, good luck. We use that word luck a lot. Why? Because we've left God out. And listen, there is no such thing as luck. The Bible doesn't talk about chance or luck. And so James says here that if you and I are to live for the will of God, make plans, not make plans independent of God, it demonstrates our dependency upon God. Well, there's one final reason that James gives us here why we are to live for the will of God, and that is this, to avoid willful disobedience to avoid willful disobedience. Notice, if you will, verse 17. He says this, So it is a sin for the person who knows what to do or knows what is good and doesn't do it. James says now, now that you know what to do, he says if you don't do it, it's a sin. He's telling these wealthy merchants You know that you need to live for the will of God. You need to know that you need to subject your plans to the will of God, and not to do that is sin. Now, some of us sin out of ignorance. 
We sometimes sin because we're not aware of certain things, and other times we sin against willful knowledge. In fact, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. The more we know, the more God expects. That's why there is the age of accountability in the Bible. It's inferred in the Bible that when you reach a certain age of accountability, God's going to hold you more accountable because you know more. Someone who doesn't know is not held as much accountable. And so as Christians... We know what God expects of us, and not to do that is willful sin. We call this sins of omission, sins of commission. So, for example, years ago, I liked to fish, and me and a friend of mine decided on one Sunday afternoon we were going to go fishing, and as I'm getting ready to go, we noticed this area that says no trespassing. So he said, well, I don't think anybody's on this property. So I said, I knew it went against my better judgment. I knew I shouldn't have gone on that property and I shouldn't have fished. It was way in the back. No one could see us. And I thought, you know what, just this one time we'll go catch a bunch of fish. He even said, man, nobody's fished in that place. We're going we're gonna to slay the fish. So we get there, we get set up, and all of a sudden a cop comes behind us. And immediately I thought, oh man, headline in the newspaper, pastor gets arrested for trespassing property. You know what? I sinned against knowledge. I knew I shouldn't have been on that property. I did it anyway. That was a sin. And you know what? When you and I don't subject our plans to the will of God, we live independent of God. When we don't live for the will of God, that is disobedience. And listen, it's not just in this area. It could be that God is calling you to serve him and you keep resisting God. You see, that's sinning against knowledge. Maybe God has called you to give your first fruits to tithe, and you're resisting God because of materialism. Or maybe God has asked you to forgive that person. You know you need to forgive them, but you choose not to. See, that's sinning against knowledge. Or maybe God wants you to help somebody. Whatever it is, we all know a certain amount of truth. That's why, listen carefully, it's dangerous to sit and listen to sermon after sermon after sermon and not come to Christ and not live for the Lord. If you're a true believer, you're not going to go to hell. But listen, there's going to be loss of reward if you just sit, soak, and sour and don't do anything with what you know. To whom much is given, much is required. God expects more out of us than he does in other parts of the world to a certain degree. Why? Because we are more educated. We have more money. We have more opportunity. We have more Bible knowledge. We have more access to truth and information. And you know what a lot of Christians do? They end up squandering it. And so that's why he says, to him who knows what to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Is there something that God is calling you to do that you're not doing? That is disobedience. Sometimes it could be God's calling you to read your Bible and you just don't do it out of laziness. All of us struggle with prayer. We know we need to pray more. And we don't pray. And so James is confronting these wealthy merchants who are making plans independent of God. They're leaving God out of the equation. They think they're the master of their own fate, the captain of their own ship, and James has to confront them. And he says, basically, you're not living for the will of God. And he gives us five reasons why you and I are to live for the will of God. Let's review them. Number one, he says, we don't know the future. Therefore, we're dependent on God. Number two, our earthly life is short. We're here today, gone tomorrow. We need to live for the will of God. Number three, to avoid proud, evil boasting. 
Number four, to demonstrate our dependency on God. When we subject our life to the will of God and say, if the Lord wills, we are showing that ultimately God is the one who's sovereign. He's the one in control. And finally, to avoid willful disobedience. And so let me ask you a question. Are you living your life independent of God this morning? Would you say Jesus is the center and circumference of your life? Would you say he's first? You and I are not perfect, but you know whether or not you are passionate about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you hungering for the things of God? Yeah, it's going to ebb and flow in your life. I understand that. We all struggle at times with spiritual lethargy. We have to fight that lukewarmness. We all do. And the longer you're in the faith, you're going to have to fight that more. But listen, in the end, when you get lukewarm, are you concerned that you are lukewarm? Are you even concerned that you're in that state? Because listen, that's a heart that says, God, I don't like where I'm at. I don't like the fact that I'm cold right now. I don't like the fact that I'm not burning white hot for you. Is there someone you need to approach? If Jesus is first in your life, maybe God is asking you to talk to them. Maybe God is asking you to get involved. When you make major decisions, are you asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? I have my desires, I have my preferences, but God, what do you want me to do? And you seek the Lord's will. You see, you're saying, Lord, I humbly depend on you because you know the future. And Lord, I'm going to subject my plans to your plans. And listen, as we close, I can say this. One thing that I know is the will of God is that you become a Christian. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says good works aren't going to get you into heaven. The only way to get to heaven is you've got to admit your sin, repent of it, and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And listen, it's not enough just to know about Christ. You have to receive him. John chapter 1 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And if you've never done that, that is the will of God. See, you're acting independent of the will of God if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior because God's will is that you have a relationship with him through Christ. And so if you've never done that this morning, search your heart. Make sure that you know that you are a believer. And if you're lukewarm this morning and you're straddling the fence, I want to encourage you to stop doing this. You need to do this, the Lord, or you need to be totally cold. You know what Jesus doesn't like? This. Revelation 3, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, you're straddling the fence. Jesus said, I'd rather you be hot or I'd rather you be cold. He says, "Uh uh-uh, this. And if we're this way, that means we're living our lives independent of the will of God. We're not living for the Lord's will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you for reminding us of your truth. Lord, I pray that we would not be like these wealthy merchants who live our lives independent of the will of God, but that we would live for you. God, I pray this morning that you would help us, Lord, to grow in our walk with you. Help us to seek you above all else. And I pray that your name would be lifted up, honored, and praised. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe you're not living for the will of God like God is calling you to. Maybe you're lukewarm right now. Would you ask the Lord to forgive you, and would you be willing to commit yourself to the Lord? He wants all of you. Yeah, you're not going to be perfect, but God wants your heart. Would you be willing to surrender this morning to him? Just take a minute to do business with God. God has spoken to you about something this morning. What is it?
Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we praise you for your grace. Be with us now in Jesus' name.